Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with retina specialist, Dr. Walid Mangel. In this episode, Dr. Mangel discusses treatment of specific retinal states. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. Now, there's some, some uh, information in the literature that that the micropulse laser actually reduces VEGF. If you could comment on that. Yeah, so it's, it's alluding to the point I made earlier, you know, that the, the changing in, in, in our thinking as it comes to lasers, it went from, it in, you know, could it increase oxygenation? Well, that's been false. So, you know, it's been decades since that theory came about and there's been no evidence for it, you know, and, you know, maybe the scar is what's leading to, to it being, to it working. Well, we know that's false too. So. What it really does, what laser really does, is that it releases inhibitory cytokines. It releases chemicals that are inhibiting VEGF. Basically, it's causing the cells, the RPE cells in your retina to release anti-VEGF chemicals that's inhibiting the growth of VEGF in the eye. So that's how laser works, and that's probably how Micropulse also works. And I think it, you know, it also restores the uh, mural cells, the, uh, the glial cells in the retina. The mural cells, those glial cells are, uh, are very important for uh, the, the blood retinal barrier. It helps protect, it helps enhance the blood retinal barrier. That's right, yep. Yeah, I mean, that's, they see that now in those histological studies that I was referring to. They can see that, that that's exactly what it's doing in the back of the eye. You know, because those are the principal uh, glial cells in the retina and also works as, and, and as those increase, it increases an antioxidant effect. Exactly. Yeah. And this is why, you know, I'm, I'm so kind of excited about this, not this technology and I've kind of kept it as part of my, my toolbox, you know, since I graduated fellowship, you know, almost, uh, you know, about eight years ago. Um, I, I, you know, I, I see how it works. I understand how it works. I see that it works. I use it in my patients. I, I you know, I, I trust in it. And, you know, anyone that I know that's, that's a new, you know, graduate, a retinal surgeon, a new graduate of a retinal fellowship, um, I talk to them about it. And I say, listen, you may not have had access to this in your training, but read about it, you know, um, you know, demo it if you have to find whatever company you, you, you think is, a, is, is a, you know, you have a good relationship with. 
and have them bring it to your office and demo it and use it and keep it in your armamentarium. You know, it's a great tool to have and you really serve your patients well um, by, by making it available to them. I actually printed out a paper on Micropulse Laser and gave it to one of my patients to bring with him to bring to his retina surgeon because th that's how effective this technology can be. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I hope that whoever that retinal surgeon is <laughs> you know, takes interest in it and says, you know what, let me, uh, let me give this a try. You know, let me, let me demo it for a week or for a month and they'll, they'll bring it to your office. You know, a lot of these companies, they want to work with doctors, um, you know, and, you know, they'll let you demo it and you can use it. And, you know, then you could start going into discussions at the meetings. They have little side, you know, um, you know, kind of a group specific discussions that you can go to and you can talk with other retinal specialists, you know, across the country that are using it. And, you know, that's how, that's how you, that's how you learn. Let's talk about, let's turn our attention to diabetes, diabetic macular edema. There's some research that shows that it actually, it actually improves the foveal vascular zone. So with OCT and geography, and if you could talk a little bit about that, we'll see an expansion of the foveal avascular zone. We'll be losing some of the capillaries, but micropulse laser actually improves it somehow. And also, uh, and, and it can decrease the number of microaneurysms. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what diabetes does is a couple of things. So how does diabetes damage the eye? So it does a couple of things. It, it makes, it causes those little blood vessels in and under the retina to become ischemic. And basically those little tiny capillaries start to close off and die. And it also causes blood vessels to become leaky. So it causes ischemia and leakage. And one of the devastating effects of having long-term diabetes is that in the back of the eye, it can cause ischemia right in the center of the macula. So the part of the eye that's the most important, the epicenter of the retina that allows you to see clearly, you can see people's faces, you can see colors, you can see details. That's the area that it can damage. And those little blood vessels that feed you know, nutrients and, and blood to that part of the retina start to die off. And, you know, for the most part, once those cells, once those capillaries die off, and you can see that on a fluorescein angiogram, you know, the, 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 the right in the center of the macula, there'll be a big black area where there's no blood supply. And it tends to get bigger and bigger, the more uncontrolled a diabetic patient is. And so the goal is to avoid that. And if it starts to start, you need to have very tight glycemic control of the diabetes. And now with a micropulse, there is some kind of rejuvenation. I mean, I don't want to oversell it and tell people that, you know, if you have this micropulse, you know, it's suddenly, you know, you're going to regain your vision that you've lost, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but there is some level of, of retinal rejuvenation going on in the back of the eye that may improve some of your vision that you've lost from diabetes. So there's been also some studies, and we talked about this before, that it also works almost as good as uh, anti-VEGF injection, especially for the more severe uh, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So they're, they're, I guess they're doing studies. What have you found in your experience as far as comparing it with severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy compared to the anti-VEGF injections? Yeah, so, you know, we, we originally started to work on this idea back in 2013, 2000, you know, and, and 14. What we wanted to do is kind of do a head-to-head -head standard pan-retinal laser 
for a patient with proliferative diabetic retinopathy versus micropulse panretinal laser. So, you know, the, in the entire periphery of the retina, you would lay, you know, laser continuous wave, you would leave some scars, et cetera. And we wanted to compare it with a micropulse mode of it. And in the early studies that we did, we did see there was some regression of the diabetes or the neovascularization on the micropulse patients, but not as good as the continuous wave laser, laser patients. So that was in the early days that we we're kind of testing out, comparing the two. Uh, and remember, this is not for macular edema. This is for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Okay, so it's a lot more kind of an aggressive condition. And I can tell you just from personal experience that if somebody has profound neovascularization of the retina, you know, horrible diabetic, didn't go to the eye doctor for 10, 20 years, finally got an insurance or finally realized that their vision's declining and they see, you know, their, their, their ophthalmologist, their optometrist, and then they get referred to a retinal specialist. And I see that patient, you know, the first floor scene they've ever gotten in their life. They have tons of ischemia, tons of NVE. Those patients are better served initially treating with an anti-VEGF. And the reason is that even if you start them out with a PRP laser, if they have a lot of NVE, it will regress quickly after the laser, but then it bleeds. So then a week later, the patient's back in your chair. Maybe they're 2060. Now they're hand motion from a vitreous hemorrhage. And so they're wondering, what did you do to me? You know, at least I could see. Now you did some laser. Now I can't see. And so I can tell you from experience, it's probably better. These patients that are very, very high risk PDR patients, it's better to give them an anti-VEGF injection, cool down the NVE a little bit, and then do the PRP laser a week later, a month later. Um, so the combination of the two works well. Or you can do anti-VEGF and then a micropulse. It just works better, the combination of the two, if the diabetes is very severe. And how about with pre-proliferative uh, diabetics? Yeah, I, I don't treat uh, and severe NPDR patients with panretinal laser, be it micropulse or standard. Let's talk about uh, vein occlusions, where these people tend to have very severe hyperpermeability of the blood vessels and seems to be more severe than some of the other conditions. How can micropulse be used for that? Or is, 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 is this a case where micropulse is not recommended? You know, in my experience, I, I have noticed that these retinal vein occlusion patients, their edema tends to be very brittle. So it, it tends not to respond to laser that well as a, as a sole treatment. So whether you do continuous laser, you know, standard laser, or if you do micropulse, they just don't respond that well. They really need anti-VEGF. I think the VEGF load is quite high in those patients. And so they really respond best to anti-VEGF treatment. However, again, what happens if you're treating with anti-VEGF? You're treating them every four weeks. You're just slamming the eye every month with an injection, but the edema improves, but doesn't resolve. Then what do you do? Okay. Then you say, well, maybe I can use a steroid. What if the patient is phakic? And if you use a steroid, you're going to, you know, there are trace NS cataract. Are you really going to inject a steroid every three months in that eye? You know what it's going to lead to a pretty bad cataract. So in those cases, yes, you can use micropulse laser treatment in conjunction with the anti-VEGF and you will see uh, uh, an improved response from the injection. So in summary, if you could summarize the, you know, uh, central serious 
diab diab early diabetes, diabetic macular edema, severe diabetes with the micropulse. If you could kind of give us a summary of it uh, in conclusion of that. Yeah, so, you know, where I find micropulse really works the best is really central serous retinopathy patients, patients who have diabetic macular edema, especially when you, when you do a fluorescein and you see kind of diffuse leakage of the diabetic macular edema. Sometimes you'll get a fluorescein and you just see pinpoint microaneurysms. You know, you can treat that with a standard laser. You don't always have to use a micropulse, if the, especially if the microaneurysms are further away from the fovea. Uh, but in those patients where you do the fluorescein, and this again goes back to my point, why you need a fluorescein in, in patients, and you see kind of diffuse leakage, those patients, if you have diffuse leakage, you can't use standard laser. Where are you going to treat first? I mean, there's literally leakage everywhere. So those are the patients that you can use a micropulse laser in a diabetic macular edema patient. Uh, and then in the RVO patients, I like to use combination treatment as well. So the CSR tends to be heavily micropulsed. The DME patients, combination, but slight tilt of micropulse sometimes. And then the RVO patients, that's really, you really do need the combination treatment to get the best response. Let's turn our attention to some of the new technology in ophthalmology and retina, OCT angiography. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I just know a little bit about OCT angiography. You know, I do know that, you know, with the standard angiogram, you are injecting a dye in the body, and then the camera uses a certain filter to look at the flow of that dye through the retinal vasculature. OCT angiography uses the movement of the patient's red blood cells to look at the vasculature of the retina. And there's some benefits to that. Number one, you're not injecting a, a chemical in the body. So although rare, there's no risk of anaphylactic shock, you know, nausea, vomiting, itching, et cetera, et cetera, that you can get with a fluorescein angiogram. So there's that benefit of it. Second benefit is it actually gives you much more detailed information about some of the deeper plexus of blood vessels, the web of blood vessels that are within the retina and underneath the retina. So you get more detailed information. The question becomes, how do you use that extra information to your benefit clinically? And you know, OCT angiography has been around for a couple of years. It's yet to really make its way in the, into the private practice world in a widespread fashion. It's been really mainly relegated to academic institution. And then of course, a few private practice. But you know, the clinically, from what I've seen, from the demo that I've had, from the information that I've read, you know, it's, it's I ha I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out how it's going to help me become a better diagnostician from, you know, relative to the imaging modalities that I already have in the clinic. Let's talk about retinal holes. Uh, when should a retinal hole be treated? Yeah, so there's an academic answer and then there's the private practice answer. <laughs> The academic answer is retinal holes don't need to be treated. We just leave them alone. What's the big deal? But I can tell you from personal experience of my own and many of my friends who are in the retinal community that there are plenty of retinal detachments that start from a retinal hole. You know, you'll have a retinal detachment. You'll take the patient to the OR and you'll say, okay, I'll just slow depress them in the OR when the patient's numb and anesthetized and they're not feeling anything. And you're depressing and you're depressing and you're looking for the tear and there is no tear. There's only one retinal hole, you know, and it's because of that retinal hole that the retinal detachment happened. And now the patient is in the operating room getting surgery. So in private practice, 
most of the retinal specialists that I know, if they have a retinal hole, especially if the patient has symptoms, they have flashes, floaters, or they have a, a little bit of a cuff of a of subretinal fluid around it, they will go ahead and laser it. Now, if it's atrophic, looks like it's been there for decades, you know, you can probably leave it alone. But symptoms and a cuff of subretinal fluid, my preference is to treat it. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. And how about lattice degeneration? Is there ever a time when you would treat lattice degeneration? I use the same criteria. You know, if the patient has symptoms that are high myope, they've had a retinal detachment in the fellow eye, or I can clearly see that there's vitreous traction on the lattice. You know, when you examine the retina and you put the lens on the eye and you focus in on the retina, if you just pull back a little bit, you can start to see some of the details of the vitreous. And if you start to see traction, you can see that there's traction on that lattice. Um, I like to treat that patient uh, with, with, you know, prophylactic laser 360 degrees around the lattice. And how about, let's talk about macular degeneration. What's new in the treatment of macular degeneration and the different anti-VEGF injections? Do you find a difference between, between them? Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to these injections, initially, you know, they, they came out with Avastin and then Lucentis, made by the same company, uh, Genentech, you know, Lucentis being FDA approved. Um, they work very similarly, the two of them. Then ILEA came out, which is by Regeneron. And, you know, they basically block different receptors. Some of them block multiple receptors. And so they kind of work better, such as ILEA. Uh, and in my experience, ILEA does work better than the Avastin and the Lucentis. But we usually don't start with ILEA because ILEA is pretty expensive. It's almost $2,000 an injection, as is Lucentis. My preference in most patients is to start with a $75 Avastin injection. And if it doesn't work after a few injections, then we can, you know, go up to the next level, you know, injection such as an ILEA. That's, that was the answer for the last decade or, or more. About a year and a half ago, Novartis came out with a drug called Beavue. And in the studies, it seemed to work better than the ILEA. But the problem was, once the drug came into market, and thousands and thousands of patients were, you know, were getting injected with a Beavue, we started to see some cases of catastrophic ischemic vasculitis in the retina, where the patient would get an injection a day later, a week later, or two weeks later, they would have immediate loss of vision in that eye, total loss of vision, and it was irreversible. And so because of that, a lot of retinal specialists pulled back from using B of U. We, and think about it, we waited a decade since ILEA came out for another injection to come out. And finally, we get one. We're all so excited. And it comes out of the gate, and then it starts to have this catastrophic uh, issue. You know, it's rare, but the fact that it can happen, it really makes a lot of retinal surgeons uneasy. So a lot of retinal specialists kind of pulled back on using it, and they use it very sparingly, if at all. I use it only in a case-by-case -case basis, uh, the B of you. And a month and a half ago, another anti-VEGF agent got FDA approval called Vabismo, which is also by Genentech. It's the same company that makes the Lucentis injection. And Vabismo uses a slightly different kind of a chemical structure, works a little bit different than the Lucentis injection or the ILEA injection. And in the original two studies that they did, the Vabismo required less injections. And so what they did is they did four injections a month apart, 
And then after that, they went to every two months or maybe even every three months um, at, at, you know, after the, the initial four loading doses. So it seems to work better um, than the other injections. And uh, I just started using it and I just used it on my first patient yesterday. And I'll let you know in about a month how she does. Do you think there'll be a time where there'll be anti-VEGF drops? You know, it's, it's hard to say. Based on what we know right now, the answer is no. But, you know, so many things, so many discoveries are made that seemed ridiculous, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, you know, almost ludicrous. And then it becomes a standard of care 10 years later. So based on what we know now, the answer is no, because you, don't, you, you, you can't get enough of the concentration of the VEGF into the eye. Uh, into the back of the eye, especially with just eye drops. So it seems the direction we're going is injections, intravitreal injections, but medicines that will last longer in the eye and require less and less injections over one, two, three year period. You know, you tell a patient they have to get an injection into their eye, they, they, it, they flip out over it, they get very nervous. Can you explain the procedure and whether or not if there's any pain or side effects and what patients who may be watching this to expect what they can expect if they need that injection and how it's done. Right. So, you know, great question. I, I, only because I do this on a daily basis. So I think about it all the time and I've really over the last decade, I've really perfected my, 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 my preparation doing the injection the correct way really comes down to prep. It's all the stuff before the injection. If you do that well, you're gonna, it's going to lead to a much better experience for the patient. So the way I usually start with a patient, I explain to them their condition. I explain to them their treatment options. I tell them that you know, in, in certain of these conditions that they're going to need an injection. For example, a patient with a central retinal vein occlusion. You know, here's your problem. Here's how we treat it. We need to do injections. Injections in the eye? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Injections in the eye, but let me explain, you know, and I tell them we numb the eye thoroughly. It's done in a very controlled fashion. Uh, pain is not an issue at all. And, you know, you know, so the, pain is not an issue, but we're going to need to do this in the beginning, at least on a monthly basis until we get control of the situation. And then we'll try to wean you off. But pain is not an issue. We numb the eye thoroughly. The way I like to do the injections is I'll do, you know, I'll have my assistant, once we decided that I'm going to do an injection, I'll leave the room and go see another patient. Meanwhile, my assistant drops three drops of topical anesthetic, preparacaine, whatever we have in the office, usually preparacaine. Three drops a few minutes apart. After the third drop or so, which at this point, it's been at least five, five minutes or so, I will come in and do a subconjunctival injection of lidocaine. And right at the bottom part of, of, the, of the, right outside of the limbus, kind of at that six o'clock position. I'll give a little bit of a lidocaine injection subconjunctival. And then I'll leave the room for five minutes, go see another few patients. And then while I'm gone, my assistant will, will prepare the injection. They'll, you know, they'll open up a sterile glove set. I use sterile gloves, very important. Um, you know, everything's sterile. Uh, eyelid speculum, baited eye will be ready to go. I use a, a TB syringe to mark and then my injection medicine. And so I'll come in the room after I've left, you know, the patient's been numbing the whole time. I'll come in, I'll lean the patient back in a chair. I'll put a speculum to hold the eyelid open that keeps it under control. That way the patient doesn't have to worry about what if I blink, you know, don't worry about it. The eyelids will be in full control. Put a speculum in the eye. And here's, here's the main thing. That subconjunctival injection 
I found is the best way to numb the eye. Some retinal specialists like to use topical jelly. They'll put it on the eye, leave, come back, and then immediately inject. It doesn't penetrate deep enough. And I've had plenty of patients who have been elsewhere and they've transferred their care because they say, every time I get an injection, I, I jump out of my chair uh, when I get the injection. And it never has to be that way. So this, the, the trick is the subconjunctival injection, waiting five minutes. And then I come in, put the speculum in. And the second trick is, is I use minimal betadine. In the old days, they would douse the eye, the eyelashes, all the way up to the eyebrow with betadine. Totally unnecessary. Betadine is super, super irritating to the eye. Even when you wash it out, it still lingers under the eyelid and then it just, it's, it's extremely irritating. A couple of drops of betadine right at the inferior kind of fornex, right at the area where I'll be injecting. And I put the betadine in and then I put my gloves on in the meantime, let the betadine work. And then I mark and then I do the injection. And as soon as the injection is done, I wash the eye out with sterile water. Thoroughly, I have the patient look all the way around. I wash the eye out with water and I take the speculum off and that's it. They don't need uh, antibiotic drops after the injections. They used to do that in the old days. Plenty of studies that said that's unnecessary. And rarely do they need any kind of artificial tears after the injection. So the way I do it, they get, they get maximal comfort, minimal to zero pain with the injection, during the injection and after the injection. Well, you mark the spot. How do you know, how do you, what do you use to mark the spot to know that you're in the right place? So I use a, a TB syringe without the needle. So that, that opening on a TB syringe is, is a perfect location where the pars plana is, where you can go in with a needle without either dinging the lens or hitting the retina if you go too far outside of it. Excellent. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, let's talk about floaters. A lot of patients come in, they complain about floaters. If you could tell us about floaters, is there anything that could be done about it? Yeah, this is, this is another topic that's near and dear to my heart um, because it affects so many patients. We have thousands of patients, all of us have seen over our careers, who come in and say, Doc, can you do anything about these damn floaters in my eyes? And, you know, for years, the answer is no, you'll get used to it. They'll settle down to the bottom of the eye. The brain will get used to it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really true for 90% of patients. You know, it's, that's still the right answer. Give it time. You'll get used to it. It'll move out of the way. But in about 10%, they don't get used to it. The floaters are numerous. They're in the way. Sometimes it's like a thumbprint that just like a wiper blade that keeps coming across your vision. And in those cases, those floaters are not going away. And so in the last, you know, 20 years, there's been a laser, a, a specific kind of YAG laser that you can use to kind of zap some of these floaters. But the YAG laser really works best on patients who have a specific Weiss ring in the back of the eye. You know, if you look in the vitreous and you see strands and, 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 and floaters and, and circles and everywhere moving across, that's not a good patient for a YAG laser. They're, it's not going to work. So then what do you do? So the third option besides do nothing and YAG laser is vitrectomy, pars plane of vitrectomy. And this was never an option 20, 30 years ago because the vitrectomy devices that we use, the instruments we put in the eye were 20 gauge. They're massive. You know, you would have to suture them into the eye as you're doing surgery. And when you pull the instruments out, there would be a gaping hole in the eye. You'd then have to suture the holes in the eye. There was a much higher risk of retinal detachment, infections, et cetera. So no one ever in the right mind ever considered 20 gauge vitrectomy to use to remove floaters for patients until our instruments got better. They went from 20 gauge to 23, meaning they got smaller. And from 23, they went to 25. And now they've gone from 25 plus to 27, which is just tiny. 
So our incisions, we put the instruments in, and when we're done with our surgery, we pull them out, and those incisions are self-seal on their own. So the risk of retinal detachments, the risk of infections is significantly less with the new modern instrumentation. And so now that's become really the go-to treatment for floaters in the back of the eyes with one procedure, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, you can remove practically almost 100%, if not 100% of the floaters in the back of a patient's eye. And what are you replacing the vitreous with? So when we do the surgery, there's constant fluid being injected in the eye uh, you know, that's connected to the vitrectomy machine, just sterile you know, uh, water. And when we're done with the surgery, we just leave the eye under fluid and the eye just generates fluid, clear fluid to replace the vitreous. And how often, and how often will you do a vitrectomy for, for floaters? How often does that come up? Well, you know, early in my career, not that often, just here and there. If just, if I just so happened to have a patient that said, Hey doc, I got floaters. Can you do something for me? Um, and then I would have the conversation with them, but you know, in the last seven, you know, six to seven years, now that my colleagues have understood that this is an option that I offer in the practice, the, you know, the referral community has begun to understand that this is an option for patients. It has become my, my number one, number two procedure in the operating room. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. If you look at my surgical sheet from eight years ago, the, the kind of surgeries I was doing to now, it's, it's starting to shift and it's shifted dramatically to floater surgery. And, you know, I used to spend three hours fixing a retinal detachment. I mean, just go to battle with the eye with, 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 with membranes and scar tissue and, and putting the retina back in buckles. I mean, just complex surgery. And, you know, you, you'd pat yourself on the back, but the patient would be like, well, yeah, I went from seeing, you know, your hand to maybe seeing your finger. I mean, it wasn't really that huge of a victory sometimes. Uh, but these floater patients, they are some of the happiest patients. It's the equivalent, I guess, of what LASIK is to the LASIK surgeon in terms of how much benefit, you know, benefit the patient gets, immediate benefit. That's, you know, this surgery is for the retinal surgeon. And how many vitrectomies versus YAGs to treat floaters? What, what would you say the percentage is if you had a ballpark it? You know, the vitrectomy is gaining a lot of, uh, of, of attention and favor um, in the last, you know, especially in the last three to five years. Um, it's being talked about in the retinal meetings. More and more retinal surgeons are realizing, you know, maybe I should offer this to my patients uh, because they're doing vitrectomies anyways for all sorts of other retinal conditions. So now they're saying, well, maybe I'll offer it to, to some of these patients. The YAG laser, not that commonly done. There are very, very few ophthalmologists in the US that offer YAG laser treatment for floaters. Part of it is it was just you know, the, the technology wasn't there. And if there was, no one ever taught it in residency programs. Uh, so you really would have to use it, you know, learn it on your own, basically, once you're, once you're in practice. And most YAG lasers are not coaxial YAG lasers. You really need a coaxial YAG laser to be able to treat floaters in the back of the eyes. So, and lastly, you know, the, the efficacy of YAG lasers, like I said, it's all over the place. It's, it's somewhere between 50 to 90%. So it's highly variable. So for those reasons, a lot of ophthalmologists just never really had, you know, uh, adopted it in their practice. And lastly, I want to ask you about uh, choroidal nevuses versus melanoma. Uh, when can you follow a choroidal nevus? And when do you have to decide, well, this is something we might have to send to oncology? 
So the way I like to personally do it, I'm, I'm somewhat of a referral source for, for you know, oncology patients, is I, I follow the, the criteria of the risk factors you know, written by the Shields, Dr. Shields from the Will's Eye Hospital. Um, and you know, they, they have a, a list of risk factors that you look at when you're looking at a freckle to figure out, is this nevus malignant, pre-malignant, or is this just a benign lesion? You know, if you see a patient for the first time and they have a six diameter massive nevus and it looks slightly elevated and it just looks a little funny to you, probably better off referring it to an oncologist, have them take a look at it. And if they say it's benign, you know, you and the patient can sleep better at night. In my clinic, I, you know, I look at the risk factors and I list them in the patient's chart, you know, proximity to the optic nerve. Does the patient have subrenal fluid? Yes or no. Orange pigment? Yes or no. Drusen, which is actually protective. Having drusen is a good sign. Do they have drusen on the nevus? Yes or no. You know, are there symptoms? Yes or no. So I'm looking, and is there elevation? Yes or no. And one of the ways I assess elevation is on my examination, but I also do B scan to, to see how elevated a, a, a nevus is in the back of the eye. And the more of those risk factors that they have, the higher the risk there is that this may, it, it may be a melanoma or it's going to transform into a melanoma. So if they have more than one risk factor, I keep a low threshold. I send them straight to the oncologist, have them take a look. And if they say it's fine, then, then I can just follow them in tandem with, with the oncologist. So you use two fine, small ocular melanoma. Is that the, uh, that's right. That's the mnemonic that, that you use when you're using a B scan, the B scan won't show elevation unless there's two millimeters. Is that correct? You can see some elevation of the B scan, but the one that I have allows you to measure the elevation. So I can always measure it and then, you know, do serial B scans over, over a time period and be able to compare the two, but you can, depends on the B scan. And if they're just flat, then you'll typically follow them. How, how often, if you, if you're not going to refer them and you're going to follow them, they don't, they have one risk factor or no risk factors. Uh, how often will you see that patient? Once a year. Once a year, not every six months. In the, in the, the first visit I'll do, after the first visit, I'll do a six month just to make sure that nothing's changing. And if it's stable after that, it's an annual examination. Well, I want to thank Dr. Waleed uh, Mangel for joining me today. He's a wealth of information. Uh, people want to find out more about you. How can they do that? So, you know, you can go to floridavision.com. Uh, uh, our practice is in beautiful Southeast uh, South Florida. Uh, we have five locations in West Palm, Jupiter, Stewart, and Port St. Lucie, Florida. And if you need to get in touch with me, you can email me at waleed.mangal at floridavision.net, or you can just call me on my personal cell phone, 703-851-7502. And is there anything that I that you wanted to say or that I might've left out uh, about in this discussion? I think we've, we've covered all the bases. I mean, you asked some excellent, excellent questions. Well, I wanna again, thank Dr. Mangel for joining me today. He's a wealth of information and if you need retinal services and you're in uh, South Florida, you know where to go. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Thank you for joining us tonight. I appreciate it, it's a great honor. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today.
Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you could screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball, and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please open their eyes? Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.